Welcome to Barah Ministries. Happy first day of spring. Yay, God, turn up the heat, please. So sick of the winter, so sick of the cold. Turn up the heat. My house is 85 degrees. I'm looking forward to it going down to 78 when I turn on the air conditioning. Welcome to Barah Ministries, an intimate local Christian church with worldwide impact. My name is Pastor Rory Clark. And welcome to the Bible lesson. I just want to remind those of you who fast forward through the lesson to the good parts, whatever those are, probably just June's singing. But don't forget to listen to the separate announcements that we have. There's always uh, things in there that would be of interest to you. So who is Jesus Christ? At Barah Ministries, we know this truth, that Jesus Christ is God. Everywhere you look in the Bible, Either Jesus was saying this about himself, or others were saying it about him, many accusing him of blasphemy because he was making himself out to be equal with God the Father. He was saying that he has the same exact character, nature, essence of God the Father. And there's a verse that says, I and the Father are one. And in the Greek, one can be translated the same. And that's the correct translation of it. I and the Father are the same. Jesus Christ is God. And John chapter 1, verse 14, makes it clear that Jesus Christ is deity. Here's what it says. It says, the word, whole logos in the Greek, that's one of the many terms that's used to describe Jesus Christ, or describe the Lord, God the Son, the word, and the word became flesh, Jesus, the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, and he lived among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten one from the source of God the Father, full of grace and full of truth. The Bible refers to Jesus in so many ways. He is the Word. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord because he's deity, Jesus the Christ because he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, he is the Son of Man, he is the God-man, 100% God and 100% man and one person forever, he is the sovereign God of the universe and nothing in the universe happens without his permission, he is the Savior of the whole world, he is the Jewish Messiah, only they didn't think so. And they still don't think so. We're going to talk about that a little bit in today's lesson. He is the Lamb of God, as described by John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the light of men. 
and in him there is no darkness at all. It's a pleasure and a blessing to worship the one and only true God. So why does Barah Ministries exist? And what makes us different? Barah Ministries makes a difference by teaching the word of God from God's perspective, verse by verse, and not from man's perspective. And we are Christians, and we have a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with the Lord through the daily study of his word. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, exhort us, believers in Christ, to know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own private interpretation. And you'll hear people in religions talk about the Bible as a bunch of stories written by a bunch of guys who were sitting around writing their opinions down with a lot of contradictions. That is the biggest load of crap ever. This is, and this is what proves it. Know this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of a human being's interpretation. It is not a human being's opinion. So what is it? Second Peter 1.21, and no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, carried along by God the Holy Spirit, spoke directly from the exact thinking of the God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 says this, who has come to know the mind of the Lord? And who will instruct the Lord? But we believers in Christ have the mind of Christ in the Word of God, the Bible. So the Bible is the Lord's exact thinking. It is not something that a bunch of guys made up. And see, that's one of the things that Satan wants us to believe. He wants us to believe that this is a book. It's just like any other book. It's out of date. That's a bunch of crap. And if you believe that crap, what he just did successfully is take away your only source of absolute truth. And that is not our experience here at Barah Ministries. So the Bible is not just stories. The Bible has no contradictions. The Bible is absolute truth. And we ask you to always compare what is taught here at Barah Ministries to what the Bible says. And that is not an invitation. That's a responsibility. Because you have a fallible human being teaching you this, but there is no fallibility in the Bible. And your responsibility is to check out what I'm saying to see if it is so. Well, who is God's enemy? It's Satan, whom God made the ruler of this world. That's one of the things that I was really impressed with yesterday in the youth ministry, that the kids who are learning from Barah Ministries know that God has an enemy. The kids who are not learning from Barah ministry said God has no enemies, right? Sun Tzu in The Art of War says if you know yourself and you know your enemy, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. But if you know only yourself and not your enemy, for every victory you gain, you'll sustain a defeat. And according to the Barna Group, 60% of Christians between the ages of 19 and 35 do not think Satan exists. That's insane. But the Barah Ministries kids, they don't think that way. So who is God's enemy? It's Satan, whom God made the ruler of this world. In John chapter 12, verse 31, the Lord says this, Now judgment is upon this world, and now the ruler of this world, Satan, will be cast out. He is the ruler of this world right now, but in the future, he will be dethroned from his rulership, and the Lord Jesus Christ will take over that rulership of the world and will rule on the earth, for a thousand years. Satan exists. He is a creature. 
He is not a symbol of evil. He is not a concept, and he isn't a cartoon character with a red epidermis and a pitchfork. He is a perfect, gorgeous, well-dressed, former officer angel and a brilliant genius. Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 15 says this, You, Satan, were the anointed cherub, and a cherub is a four-winged officer angel. You were the anointed cherub who covers. He was the Lord's bodyguard. He was the Lord's secret service. His job was to protect the throne room of heaven from evil approaching it. And I, the Lord God, the Son, placed you there in that position. You were on the holy mountain of God in the third heaven, the residence of God, and you walked in the midst of the stones of fire in the throne room of heaven. He had complete access to the presence of God. If not for God's protective power, we would be defenseless against him. Satan's purpose is to ruin your life. His strategy against the human race is religion. He deceives people into following false teachers, and he gets them to worship false gods. And there are people sitting in churches all over the world today who are completely deceived by this, who really believe that they believe in the real Jesus Christ when they believe in another Jesus. And they don't know why, because they've never bothered to examine the doctrinal statement of their religion. Not once. They believe everything that's told to them. They sit there like lemmings. And then one day, they're going to be in hell. They're going to be in the lake of fire. And they're going to be scratching their head, wondering how it happened. But I was a good person. That's what a couple of the kids told me yesterday. That's how you get to heaven. You just get there by being a good person. Well, if that's the case, I'm in trouble. (laughs) Amen? I am not a good person. But forget me for a second. How about Paul? How about the Apostle Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, who is the biggest murderer of all time, whose single-handed goal was to wipe out the Christian church? How about him? He's in heaven. He was not a good person. Admittedly so. In several places in the New Testament. He called himself the least of all the saints. And he wasn't being self-effacing by saying that. So, Satan deceives people into following false teachers. He gets them to worship false gods. The spiritual life is warfare, and your soul is the battleground. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9 says, Resist Satan, and instead stand firm in your faith in the Lord. I highly recommend that. Today's Bible lesson in God's plan, How We Treat Unbelievers Matters. In God's plan, how we treat unbelievers matters. Well, as we continue the study of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we've learned that there were some treatment issues in the first century church at Corinth. A group of believers in the church who considered themselves as the spiritual elite were lording their spiritual gift of tongues over believers who had different spiritual gifts. And this mistreatment, was showing up during open-to-the-public worship services. And Paul has been asked by Chloe's people to address it. In our last lesson, Paul reminded this group in Corinth that spiritual gifts are to be used to edify the members of the body of Christ, believers in Christ, gifts that should be used with a foundation of unconditional love. In today's lesson, 
Paul reminds the believers of Corinth that God cares about how we treat unbelievers as well. And he is amazingly gracious to unbelievers. All right, well, let's hear some music. We worship a perfect God who has perfect strength, who keeps on pouring his perfect power into us. Philippians 4.13 says this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My birthday is April 13th. You think the 4.13 there in that verse, you think that's a coincidence? That is not a coincidence. God was telling me by having me be born on April 13th, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I have found that to be very true in my life. Well, Stephen Curtis Chapman sings, His strength is perfect. Strength is good. 
strength come from? That's what Peter said. Peter said to the Lord, if we don't follow you, who are we going to follow? So true. Let us pray. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of studying your absolute truth, the Word of God. Father, thank you for Barah Ministries. Thank you for placing people in leadership positions at Barah Ministries who have faith that is smaller than a mustard seed, the smallest of all the seeds. And thank you for allowing us as leaders to overwork ourselves, both in the world and within the ministry, so we can neglect to plant the seeds of the gospel message of salvation in Satan's kingdom. And thank you for allowing our spirit of limits to distract us from the discomfort and growth you wait patiently to provide for us when our faith is ready to accept it. Give us a vision as big as you are. Awaken the courage you have placed within us. Help us to lead our families and our friends to a relationship with you. Show us how to take advantage of your marvelous bigness so that we are shamed into knowing beyond a reasonable doubt that we can do all things through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who strengthens us. We ask this through the enabling power of God the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. So that's one of the things that we as leaders have to wrap our heads around at a point. We have to wrap our heads around the fact that this ministry and its success and its growth isn't about our little box-sized vision of it, our little limited vision of it, that God has a bigness ready for us when we're ready to accept it, that he's big enough to do anything. And we looked at, uh, uh, we talked to people who own a home right next to where we're building our church, and we're talking to them about buying their property. Now, we don't have a half a million dollars to buy that property. But we have a God who's big enough to provide anything. He's big enough to provide something for that property. He's big enough to provide our dream of building a facility here in in Gilbert, Arizona, that people can come to as a refuge and learn learn about Christ. We don't have the money for it. And, you know, there have been a lot of times when I've tried to put the money up myself, and it has been rebuffed. Because God doesn't want me to put the money up for it. He wants to do it. Because he wants us to know that he's big enough to do anything. And the leaders of Barah Ministries have a tiny vision. But God is bigger than that. See, he was big enough to give us that land that we own, free and clear, that we've owned for 10 years, for a fraction of the price. He was big enough to give us the perfect architect. Before yesterday, we even had a contractor. We don't have a contractor anymore, so now he's got another contractor planned for us. And we're looking forward to that and seeing who that is. But God has a plan for this ministry, and it's way bigger than our thoughts about it. God has a plan for your life that's way bigger than your thoughts about it, the things that you've settled for the things you listen to the world. See, because for for those of us who are advanced in years, when our hair gets gray, we're supposed to just torque it on down. We're supposed to retire. I don't even like that word, you know? Like, first you have a tire, and then you have to redo it. 
I don't even like that. I don't like that word. I like the tire part. But the thing that nobody tells you in the world is the actuarial tables say that if you're a non-smoker and you hit 65, you're probably going to hit 90. So what are we supposed to do? Phone it in for 25 years? I'm not interested. At that point in our lives where we get the most competent that we've ever been, then we're supposed to quit? That's crazy. Yet that's what we do because we listen to what the world is telling us. Right? Isn't that right, June? You fall down a couple times, you think it's, all, it's, you think it's over, don't you? Right? He proved, he proved that wrong, didn't he? <laughs> it's not over. Today's Bible lesson and God's plan, how we treat unbelievers matters. How we treat unbelievers matters. Well, we continue our study of 1 Corinthians with a verse-by-verse -verse look at chapter 14, verses 20 to 25. To begin, a reminder about open to the public worship services, the Barah Ministries public worship service. Our service has three parts. What's part one? It's the introduction. And in the introduction, every single week, what do we tell you? We tell you who Jesus Christ is. We could never run out of verses to tell you who Jesus Christ is. We tell you what makes Barah Ministries different, what makes us different. We teach the Word of God from God's perspective, not from man's perspective. You know, most Bible studies are a bunch of people getting together and talking about what their opinion is of the verse. The New Testament is written in Koine Greek. Every expression in the language Koine Greek has one and only one interpretation. There's nothing to interpret. And if every Christian doesn't come away from a particular Bible verse with the same understanding, somebody's missing it, and it isn't the Bible that's missing it. I read and write Koine Greek, and I can tell you it's frightening how clear the language is. And as a clarity freak, I certainly appreciate that. So, and then the third part, of our lesson is every week we tell people who our enemy is. God has an enemy and it is Satan. And God loves Satan unconditionally. So Satan is not God's enemy because God doesn't love him. Satan is God's enemy because he chose to turn on the person that he was created to protect. So that's part one of our public worship service. Part two, which we're in right now, is for believers in Christ. We study the Word of God verse by verse. Right now, we're studying Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. The Corinthian church is a bunch of knuckleheads. How do you know? If you have to write two chapters and 20, two letters and 29 chapters to somebody, they're a bunch of knuckleheads. He wrote four chapters to the Colossians. He wrote four chapters to the Philippian church. He wrote five, six chapters to the Ephesian churches. Those were the churches who were listening. But there are always churches who don't listen. And you have to say more. When you're a teacher, you have to say more to those who aren't listening. So we're studying the first letter to the Corinthian church. We're learning about a new church with immature believers. And we get to compare their conduct to, to our own because the same things that were happening in the first century Corinthian church happen right here in our church. 
And I don't out you guys about those similarities. I talk more about myself so that I don't have to talk about you. Amen? Oh, yeah. Thank you, because I know you're dirt. I could put it in the street. Amen? But I'm not going to do that to ya. And then part three of our lesson. <laughs> part three of our lesson is for unbelievers. And it is the gospel message. Nobody leaves Barah Ministries without understanding what it takes to be saved. Nobody leaves Barah Ministries without knowing exactly what happens when you close your eyes in this life. And that should not be something that is confusing to you or something you're scratching your head about or something you're making false statements about. Like, if I'm just a good person, God's going to let me in heaven. No, no. Well, I'll just talk to St. Peter at the pearly gates. He isn't there. The Lord Jesus Christ is there. Who is Peter? Peter was just a big mouth. Oh, he's putting his foot in his mouth. Lord, with you, I'll go to prison and to death. <laughs> Denied him three times before the cock crowed. So anyway, that's the Barah Ministries public worship service. There's a part one, there's a part two, and there's a part three, and it's the same every week. The messages at Barah Ministries are easy to understand. They're organized. They're recorded in audio and video. They're readily available on the Barah Ministries website and on the Barah Ministries app and sometimes on Facebook, just not today, with written notes that can be examined, reviewed, and discussed. In short, our public service is totally understandable, both to believers in Christ and to unbelievers. Well, in the per public worship service of First century Corinth, the best way to describe the service is complete chaos. And that's what we've been studying. People would get up and make a random display of the spiritual gift of tongues. And if you've ever been to a Pentecostal church, you've heard that. And everybody goes, oh my, that's so spiritual. Oh, that's not spiritual. It's nonsense. And believers in Christ don't understand it, and unbelievers think we're crazy when that's going on in the front. So we are not talking to our guests in unintelligible terms. We're talking to them in ways that make sense to them because God reveals himself in ways that make sense to human beings. God does not work in mysterious ways. He works in entirely predictable ways because he is a clarity freak and everything with him is one. And so that was not going on in the Corinthian church. The tongues that some of the people were using were unintelligible and they were being used to make other believers with quite different spiritual gifts feel inferior. The public worship service had a negative effect on unbelievers as well. So in Corinth, there were the spiritual elite. One of the stupidest things that is true about our culture is that there are people who think they are superior to other people because of the color of their skin. Amen? And I think black people need to stop that. Sorry, come on, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. 
One of, uh, one of my family friends growing up was Jesse Owens. Have you guys ever heard of Jesse Owens? So in the 1936 Olympics, my mom tried out for the 1936 Olympics in the long jump, and she was going to make it, but she tore her cartilage. And so she, she and Jesse Owens were friends, and as a matter of fact, he liked her a lot, and she didn't like him. And I'm thinking, Mom, I could have been fast. Like, what's up? <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. <laughs> so anyway, you know, we'd get to see him maybe once a year, and he was telling us the story of when he went to the 36 Olympics. And, you know, to, to zoom to the end, for those of you who don't know, he won four gold medals. Now, Hitler had said that the, that the white race was dramatically superior to the black race. And so here is Jesse Owens coming there, and he wins four gold medals, which made Hitler look like an idiot. And after he had won the first two gold medals, Hitler started a little plot to make sure that this success did not continue. And as Jesse Owens was running the long jump, every time he would hit the board, it, there would be called a foul. And you get three times to make a jump, and if you... If you foul three times, you're out. So the plan was he was going to foot fault three times and he was going to be out. And one of, the German, um, uh, one of the German long jumpers who he was competing with saw what was going on. And so he came on to the long jump course and put a towel down about six inches before the, the place where your foot had to hit. So and he was telling Jesse, hit here, and it will be absolutely obvious that there can't be a football. Not only did Jesse hit there, but he also set a world record. And he won the third gold medal. And so in a world where there's all this stupidness about color and about people being better than somebody else because of the color of their skin. There are always people in these circumstances who don't think that way, who don't feel that way. But none of them get the publicity. The only people who get the publicity are the ones who are being idiots. I was listening to Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech the other day, and he was talking about how one day in Alabama, when... You know, when George Wallace's influence isn't there, little black boys and little black girls and little white boys and little white girls are going to work together as one. And I don't, I don't remember when the speech was. It was in the 60s, I think, that he gave that speech. And he was, he was prophetic, right? The Alabama football team. That was really funny. Right? So the Alabama football team is little black boys and little white boys working together winning national championships. And it's amazing. Unheard of 50 years ago. Could not be possible 50 years ago. But all of a sudden, somebody thought it might be a good idea not to be so stupid. Well, that's what's going on in the Corinthian church. The spiritual elite are looking down on everybody else, and they're saying, because I have the spiritual gift of tongues, I'm better than you. No, they really weren't. And last week, we, we understood that the spiritual gift of tongues, which was alive then and is dead today, it does not any longer exist, although there are people who are still pretending that it does, was not more important. 
And Paul was telling the Corinthian church in chapter 14 that the gift of prophecy was more important. So we're going to see how this unfolds today. Paul is addressing the problem. And the next passage is the beginning of his concluding argument that has been building in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. So let's read the next section of this three-chapter passage, and then we'll study it verse by verse. It's a short section, but it packs a lot of punch. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 to 25. Brethren, that's a term that refers to believers in Christ. Paul is talking to believers in Christ in the church at first century Corinth. Do not be children in your thinking. In evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. 1 Corinthians 14, 21. In the Mosaic law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. It's a reference to the Jews in Israel. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This was uh, a part of what Isaiah was saying to the Jewish race, that they needed to listen. And what he wanted them to listen to is the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah that the Old Testament predicted would come. 1 Corinthians 14, 22. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. And prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. 1 Corinthians 14, 23. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together, and if all speak in tongues, and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're mad? Won't they think you're absolutely crazy if they start hearing you speak in tongues? The answer is yes. That's exactly what unbelievers think when they come to a Christian church that is talking a bunch of wacky crap. What is this? 1 Corinthians 14, 24. But if all prophecy is spoken in your church and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. 1 Corinthians 14, 25. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. All right. So what we're going to do is study this passage and see exactly what is being said here. Let's take a look at what the passage is teaching verse by verse, starting at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20. Here it is in in an illuminated uh, translation. Brethren, believers in Christ at the church in first century Corinth, do not be children in your thinking. But if you want to be children, in evil be infants which means don't give evil a single thought. But in your thinking, be mature. We had a young lady in the youth ministry yesterday who was saying that she hangs out with the seedier people in her school. And so I said, well, what do you mean? I mean, are you hanging out with the gangbangers? Well, they're not exactly gangbangers. Okay, they're gangbangers. Now you're hanging out with them. All right. And so we talked. And in her mind, she can do that successfully and have it have no effect on her. But the Bible says something different. The Bible says bad friends corrupt good morals. And she was talking specifically about marrying an unbeliever. And she thought it was perfectly okay. If you, if you love somebody, maybe God will change the unbeliever's heart. Now, I've seen about a hundred of those cases 
where women specifically will marry unbeliever males. And you know what has happened in a hundred of the hundred cases? A <laughs> hundred out of a hundred times, the woman has been taken out of church, out of Bible study. It does not work the way they think. A hundred out of a hundred cases. It does not work that way. Isn't that funny? Not funny, ha-ha, funny, peculiar. So we're talking about that. So we don't want to give evil a second thought. We don't want to be around it. And Paul is encouraging the Corinthian believers to be mature in their thinking. It's an interesting contrast of thought here. Paul encourages and admonishes the Corinthians indirectly, because Paul is really indirect with them. They're, they're new believers, so he doesn't want to hurt their feelings. He doesn't want to turn them off. But he's calling them childish. And he was accurate, because that's what they were being. He was telling them to grow up. And it's the same thing he has already told them earlier in the same letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, I, Paul, brethren, again, talking to fellow believers in Christ at Corinth, could not speak to you as I would speak to spiritual persons. Who are spiritual persons? Those with the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, believers in Christ. Even though you're believers, I can't talk to you like you're believers. Why? I have to speak to you as if I'm speaking to men of flesh, those without the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, unbelievers. I have to talk to you like I'm talking to infants in Christ. And he goes on to use the analogy, I have to give you milk instead of solid food because you don't have any spiritual teeth. So he's calling them children here. He said, you're acting like little babies. Why? Because there are divisions and rivalries among you that you're allowing to happen. He does it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child speaks. I used to think as a child thinks. I used to reason as a child reasons. But when I became a man, I put an end to childish things. That was my goal with my kids in raising them. I wanted them to leave my home with adult souls to match their adult bodies. Because there are a lot of little boys in men's bodies. There are a lot of little girls in women's bodies. And they're being called women, but they aren't. They're little kids. Drama creators. Male and female. And you have some as friends. Amen? Amen? All right. Paul even had to address the same issue with other churches on his watch. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, he addressed the church at Ephesus in Turkey. He said this, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That is a person who has been hit with a tsunami. And the tsunami is picking them up and slamming them into walls. And then it picks them up and slams them into another wall because kids are easily swayed from thing to thing. And the tsunami is so powerful, it can move us from thing to thing. We're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, false teachers, by craftiness in deceitful scheming, Satan's program for us. Ephesians 4.15 Instead, speaking the truth in unconditional love, we are to grow up in all aspects into the Christ who is the head of the body. Jesus Christ is the head. 
we church-age believers are the body of Christ. And Paul wants the believers in Corinth to not be flighty like children, but to be mature, seeking, seeing the effect that their conduct has on others. Paul doesn't want the Corinthian believers, Paul does want the Corinthian believers to be like babies in one respect. He wants them to be curious enough to learn. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 3, here's what the Lord has to say. He says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This was instigated by the moms of two or three disciples. They had, the, the moms had gone to Jesus and said, Hey, of these uh, 12 you got, who's number one? And she, of course, was you know, kind of prompting Jesus. She was hoping her son was number one. And Jesus didn't answer her directly. And the people who were put up to asking him who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven were being childish, trying to establish a spiritually elite pecking order. Here's what Jesus had to say in Matthew 18:2. Jesus called the child to himself and set the child before them. Matthew 18:3. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's the beautiful thing about what Jesus said here. He wasn't only talking to the people who were trying to establish the spiritual elite pecking order. He was also talking to one of his uh, disciples who was not a believer in Christ. Who was that? Judas. Judas Iscariot, who died an unbeliever. To the Lord, greatness comes from childlike humility, not from self-righteous, a self-righteous approach to life and to Christianity. And so it is with the spiritual gifts. They're used to edify other believers, sealed with unconditional love, and not used to cause divisions and rivalries. The spiritual gifts are also to be used to create an inviting atmosphere for unbelievers in public worship services. We want the people who come to visit us here at Baran Ministries to stay. We want them to feel comfortable here. We want them to know the truth of the Word of God. We want the truth of the Word of God to impact their souls. We want them to have reactions in their souls to what they're hearing here because it will contradict anything in their souls that might be false. And you have to check those things. I, I'll tell you what, I had two humongous epiphanies in my own life after being in two disciplines for a really long time and finding out that I had allowed myself to be deceived. Now, you know what I could have done? I said, oh, it's no big deal. I could have just kept teaching false stuff, spread that false stuff onto my kids. I'm not interested in that. I don't care how wrong I am. I can be fooled. How about you? Are you good enough not to be fooled? And if I'm fooled, I don't mind. 21 years as a Roman Catholic, found out I was fooled. And you know what I did? I curled up in the fetal position on the floor, stuck my thumb in my mouth, and I cried for about five days straight. Because I was on the track to be a Jesuit priest. Then I jumped out of the frying pan into the fire of systematic theology for 29 years. 
If it's not sin, it must be the law. I couldn't keep the law. I couldn't stop sinning and I couldn't keep the law. That's, that's worth a drum. <laughs> yeah. 50 years. 50 years. 50 years. Now, that tour of sin and the law was orchestrated for me by God. So that when I got to the truth, I would know the counterfeit. Isn't that amazing? Now, he and I are going to have a conversation about that. So, I was a little bothered by it. It shouldn't have taken 50 years. Amen? All I had to do was read Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Could have cut off at least 30 years of that. Sin shall no longer be sovereign over you since I went to the cross and died for you because you're not under the Mosaic law. You're under grace. Why didn't he introduce that to me a little earlier? He says to me, why didn't you study the book of Romans a little earlier? Because <laughs> any Christian who hasn't studied the book of Romans can't really say they understand Christianity. Paul's been teaching the Corinthian believers that a foundation of unconditional love, driving the spiritual gifts, is useful because unconditional love is not going away. Paul contends that obsessing over two gifts, tongues and prophecy, that soon will cease is a waste of time. Tongues and prophecy are no longer in play. They were the imperfect, and something more perfect has come. What is the more perfect thing that has come that has made uh, tongues and prophecy no longer useful? It's this, the Bible, 66 books, only 27 of which you're responsible for. You're only responsible for the back part. How about that? Paul is calling the Corinthian believers immature. He's telling the Corinthians that there's no value in a public worship service engaging in unintelligible speech. Pap the bap the bap. Especially because of the effect it has on unbelievers. Well, when we return from the break, we'll take the offering and then we'll see what Paul recommends in the treatment of unbelievers during public worship. Take a five-minute break. Why you ever chose me has always been a mystery. All my life I've been told I belong at the end of the line. With all the other not quite With all the never get it right But it turns out they're the ones you were looking for all this time Cause I'm just a nobody We're trying to tell everybody we're all about somebody Who saved my soul Ever since you rescued me You gave my heart a song to sing Living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus When Moses had stage fright And David brought a rock to a sword fight You picked 12 outsiders Nobody would have chosen
and then you change the world. Well, the moral of the story is everybody's got a purpose. So when I hear that devil start talking to me, saying, Who do you think you are? I say, I'm just a nobody. Nobody, nobody trying to tell everybody all about 
welcome back. Today's Bible lesson in God's plan, how we treat unbelievers matters. How we treat unbelievers matters. Well, God the Father loves all of his creatures unconditionally. And he loves us so much that he gave his son to save us. Let the thoughts expressed in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 really sink in. If God the Father is for us believers in Christ, and he is, that's a first-class condition, if, if and it's true, who is ever going to be successful in opposition against us? The answer? No one. No one. Romans 8.32. God the Father, who in the midst of his feeling of wrath toward us, based on the commission of sin, did not spare his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So when God the Father was mad at us, he sent his son to save us. And he delivered him over for us all. So if he was willing to do that strong thing, how will God the Father, not now that we're in union with Christ, not freely give us all things? If we're clear on how big God is, and if we're clear what he's willing to give us, let's not be conflicted about giving. Let's realize what God is able to do with what we give, both for us and for others. Let's realize how important giving is to create the possibility of salvation for others, especially the experience of a so great salvation. You should get on the uh, Facebook page sometimes, the Barah Ministries Facebook page, and see all the check-ins from all over the world every week. People that we don't know, but people who are listening. People who love the truth. So be generous with your financial gifts the financial gifts that the Lord has given you. Let's welcome up Deacon Denny Goodall with one of his always inspiring offering messages. Good morning. My name is Denny Goodall, and I'm blessed to be a deacon for Brown Ministries. Barah Ministries is a worldwide Christian church, and this is a place for real people who want to listen to a real pastor <clears throat> teach the real truth from the Word of God. And last week's message from pastor was great, <clears throat> how the, our, our God obliterates all of our inadequacies in our lives. Right? That's a great message. So why are they still a problem in our lives, was my thought. Why, is, why are all my inadequacies still a problem? And it's, it's funny, because I'm sure I'm not the only one, but you think about teens, how about teens? They're, they're full of inadequacies, right? They're always worried about everybody else's feelings about them. They're worried about how they look. You know, and now in this hypersensitive world we live in, it's your race, your gender, your religion. I mean, they don't know what to think or believe these days. And they give life to those things. We give life to our inadequacies. You know, and how about myself? How about adults? I've, I'm always chasing the dollar bill, and I'm sure it's strained relationships. From friends I've worked with that I don't want to get the message I don't want to talk to them because I know it's just more work, but they're my friends, so it's strained things. And I'm sure my wife is sick of me working too many hours and coming home late and not helping with the kids, so it's strained things. And I'm giving life to that, you know. And as congregation members, we have inadequacies, right? We're, you know, maybe we're a little, you know, I don't want to go out and talk to people. I'm a little closed in. I'm scared about what I'm going to say. And we give life to that. We, we empower those things. And really, when you think about it, we're just like Satan, Right? I want to be like the Most High. We're giving life. We're trying to resurrect our inadequacies. 
We're trying to be like, be like God and resurrect things that are bad for us. And that's just something that I think we all do, you know. And why do we do that? Because we don't let, like Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says, we don't let unconditional love be without hypocrisy. We don't make it sincere. We don't abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Right? In our lives, we give inadequacies life. We're clinging to the evil. We're looking at the evil. Let's turn away from that. But don't just turn anywhere. Turn to what's good. Right? Turn to Christ. That's what we should turn to and not try to give life to our inadequacies. We're the ones that cause the problems. We're the ones that make these things flare back up, in my mind. And I can't be the only one. And I'm sure it's everybody can think of their own inadequacies that pops up in their lives and they give life to it rather than giving life and relying on God's power, which is endless. And our power, has, it's, it's going to fail. So when we give power to something, it's going to fail. It's going to be a problem. So let's turn away from evil and let's turn to what's good. And that's what we can do with the offering. We can actually put our money where our mouth is and support a ministry that's really trying to get the, a positive message out, the truth out. And that's why I thank Pasha so much because he was, enabled, he was able to work through everything he knew was probably wrong and was, was a lie at one point, was inadequate. And he, he stood up here and told us that he was wrong. That takes amazing courage, not only to investigate the potential of being wrong, but then to admit it and change course. And so, you know, I really praise Pastor, and I thank everybody for always giving. And I just want to remind Pastor, you know, if you have some inadequacies at your birthday, just remember it was your message that caused us maybe not getting you gifts. (laughs) So thank you very much. Welcome back. 
Today's Bible lesson in God's plan, how we treat unbelievers matters. How we treat unbelievers matters. Deacon Denny, I think you got the message a little backwards on the birthday gift. Last week's message was about bigness. And I think uh, you should really be thinking big when you're thinking about the pastor's gift for April 13th. Really big. You know, you guys never think anything that I ask you for about myself is funny or <laughs> good. I'm okay with that. You know, I'm used to that. I am. Tell you. <laughs> All right, let's continue. Today's Bible lesson in God's plan, how we treat unbelievers matters. Let's continue our study at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 21. In the Mosaic law, it is written... By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to these people, the Jews of Israel. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. When God talks to us in ways that we can understand, it is to edify us. When God speaks to us in ways we cannot understand, it is to judge us. An analogy is readily available. The Lord, God the Son, became flesh, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, and he came to his people, the Jews, in Israel. He sent them a clear and intelligible message. I am the Messiah. I have proven with my very life the 109 things that you should have been warned you would see in me so that you could recognize the Messiah, yet the Jewish race rejected him. And when it was apparent that they would not change their minds about him, they were judged. Now these were Jewish unbelievers. There were some who became believers, but most of them, the majority of them, were Jewish unbelievers. Here's what it has to say in Acts chapter 28, verses 23 to 28. When the Jewish leaders had set a day for Paul to speak, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. That's a really funny expression. They came to him at his lodging. He was in jail. (laughs) He was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets, shorthand for the Old Testament. From morning until evening, he talked to them all night long. I think Lionel Richie was somewhere around to write the song all night long because that's how long Paul was talking to them. Now, this is a Paul who in Romans chapter 9 said, If I could, I would trade in my heaven card and go to the lake of fire if what I would get in return is the salvation of the entire Jewish race. That's how passionate he was about his people. And they weren't hearing anything that he had to say. They, didn't wanna, they, they did not want to listen. Why? Because of the hardness of their heart. Acts chapter 28, verse 24. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken by Paul. Some became believers in Christ. But others, the majority, would not believe. That's a choice. When you don't believe the truth, that's a choice. Acts chapter 28, verse 25. And when they, Paul and the Jewish leaders, did not agree with one another, the Jewish leaders began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers. Acts 28, 26, saying, Go to this people 
and say, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. The way my mom used to say that is, none are so blind as those who refuse to see. What was she talking about? She was talking about will. And that's what's going on here. They were not willing to see. Acts 28, 27. For the heart of this people has become dull. What does it mean? A heart hardened to accepting Jesus as the Messiah. And to this day, most of the people in the Jewish race will tell you that Jesus was a good prophet, Jesus was a good rabbi, Jesus was a great teacher, Jesus existed, but they absolutely deny his deity and they absolutely deny that he is the Messiah. They'll catch it on the second time around. You know, that's what Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are about. Oh, chapters 1 to 8. Okay, here's what Christianity is really all about. Chapters 9 to 11, here's what happened to the Jews. Because the Jews have been set aside for a period of time to usher in the church age. And that's what we are. If you're a believer in Christ, you are a church age believer. The most magnificent group of believers ever. A, a group of believers completely indwelled by all three members of the Trinity. Amen? That's amazing. And, you know, it's funny, it's, it's sort of like you having a vault filled with billions of dollars, and you don't even know it's there, and you don't know what to do with it, even if you do know what it's, that it's there. And that's what we were talking about last week, the bigness of God. That's what the Barah Ministries leadership has to get clear on, that how big God is. And we think that it's, it's this hard task for God to give us $3 million to build this facility. When there are people sitting out there dying to give $3 million away to build a facility like that. And all they need from us is a vision and some demonstration of leadership. That's all. Because our vision is too big for our resources. Yours too? Yours too? I'm talking to you. Is your set of resources too small for the vision you have for yourself? But you dumb your vision down. You dumb your dream down because you accidentally speak your dream out loud and somebody says, well, that's not realistic. People have told me so many times, that's never going to get built. Okay. If I'm dead, that's going to get built. It's going to get built. If I had to build it, it's going to get built. Amen? Thank you. <laughs> Why you get all quiet when I ask for an amen, but if somebody says something about song, everybody's amen. <laughs> so the Jews' hard hearts were hardened. So the heart of this people has become dull a heart hardened to accepting Jesus as the Messiah. With their ears, they scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return. And I, the Lord, would heal them if they came back. He's waiting with open arms to welcome the Jewish race, his chosen people, and Israel, his chosen nation. He's waiting to welcome them back. Acts 28, 28. 
Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Do you know how repugnant that is, Paul saying that to the Jews was? That this plan that was supposed to be the Jewish-only plan was now going to be given to the Gentiles. There's a, a term in Yiddish referring to us Gentiles, the goy. You know, that's like a dog that you throw scraps to. Goy. He's a goy. Goyesha. It was absolutely repugnant to them that we would get the same privileges that they would get. But we have a God who is not a God of partiality. Amen? And so after this, silence. God spoke to the Jewish race in tongues. They were unintelligible. When the tongues are unintelligible, it indicates what? Judgment. And then silence. The last 2,000 plus years, there has been no, not a peep from God about the Jews. A deafening silence. The Lord has not spoken to the Jews since this moment and will not speak to them again until the beginning of the next age in divine history, which is called the Tribulation. The Tribulation period is a seven-year period that completes the age of Israel, and it happens right after all the believers in Christ are plucked off of the earth in a phenomenon known as the rapture of the church or the exonostasis, the exit resurrection of the church where we meet the Lord in the air and get our resurrection bodies. But thousands of years of silence toward the Lord's nation and his people. Paul, of course, is the apostle to the Gentiles. Here's the guy who was trying to kill off the whole Christian church, is he, and he is now the apostle to the Christian church, specifically the Goy. That's God's sense of humor. You and I are Gentiles. Now Paul makes it clear how the spiritual gift of tongues and prophecy are useful in the Corinthian church and what makes them not so useful. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 22. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe but to unbelievers. And what was the sign to the Jews? Judgment. And prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers but to those who believe. And here's a nice contrast by the way. Sometimes God uses tongues for edification. Sometimes he uses it for judgment. Against the Jews in this Acts passage, he used it for judgment. But remember when he used it for edification at Pentecost? Where there were tongues of fire and the Holy Spirit came upon everybody. And Peter was speaking to a group of people in his own language, Aramaic and all of them heard him in their own language. That's what tongues was, completely intelligible. He was not, Paul was not standing there, that, 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 and everybody said, wow, that's really profound, isn't it? It wasn't like that. He would speak in his language, Aramaic, or me, English, hi there, and if they were from Mexico, they would hear it in Spanish. Hola, como esta? That's what tongues were. Sometimes intelligible, sometimes not. Intelligible, edification. Not intelligible, judgment. 
1 Corinthians 14, 23. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, this is public worship, and a man unacquainted with Christianity, perhaps positive to Christianity, somebody who just wandered into the church, or an unbeliever who entered the church who was perhaps dragged there by someone, but had no interest in Christianity. Will they not say that you're mad? Won't they think you're crazy? That's the British mad. You're mad. 1 Corinthians 14, 24. But if all prophecy is spoken in your church, and an unbeliever or a man unacquainted with Christianity enters the church, he is convicted by all through prophecy. He is called to account by all through prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14.25 And the secrets of his heart are disclosed so that he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Who is at work at the base of prophecy? When people are hearing prophecy, who's, who's giving it? God the Holy Spirit, correct. He is the distributor of spiritual gifts. He is the one who makes prophecy intelligible. When seeds are planted in unbelievers, God the Holy Spirit is producing the increase. John chapter 16, verses 7 to 11 say this, I, the Lord Jesus Christ, tell you the truth, apostles. This is him speaking to his apostles in the upper room discourse the night before he was crucified. It is to your advantage that I go away. They didn't think so. They were weeping. But if I don't go away, the helper, Greek word parakletos, the paraclete, someone who comes powerfully to the assistance of another, the, paraklet, the, the paraclete, God the Holy Spirit, will not come to you if I don't go away. But if I go away, and I will, I will send God the Holy Spirit to you. John 16, 8. And God the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I hear believers in Christ misuse the term convict all the time. I sinned and so I was convicted. If you're a believer in Christ, you're not convicted. Convicting is something that God the Holy Spirit does to unbelievers. And what does it mean to convict? It means to convince. He convinces them about three things that they have to know to make a decision for Christ. All right, what are those three things? Sin and righteousness and judgment. John chapter 16, verse 9, God the Holy Spirit will convict the world concern, and the world is unbelievers. He will convict the world concerning sin, which is the greatest problem in the world, because unbelievers don't believe in me. That's the sin that will get you sent to hell, rejecting a relationship with Christ, the sin of unbelief. John chapter 16, verse 10, and God the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning the righteousness of Christ who was falsely accused of unrighteousness and was crucified. They only crucified people who were guilty and unrighteous. Jesus Christ was not that. What vindicated him? Because I, the Lord Jesus Christ, go to God the Father and you'll no longer see me. The resurrection from the dead vindicated the Lord as righteous. It vindicated him as deity. John 16, 11, and God the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has already been judged. Satan is the, has lost the creator-creature conflict and is on death row 
awaiting his tossing into the lake of fire. He will be the third creature tossed into the lake of fire at a future time. But he's still got a lot of wrangling to do before the thousand seven years that will complete divine history happen. So there's the rest of the church age, which is X. We don't know how long that's going to last. Then the rapture of the church. Then the seven-year tribulation period. Then the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. We will be on the earth reigning with him as church age believers. And then the destruction of the earth and the universe as we know it. The creation of the new earth and the new universe and the eternal state. Satan has lost. But... It doesn't stop arrogant ones from continuing on. And he will keep flagellating and flagellating like a kid who's been thrown into the water with a life jacket on. And one day that life jacket's going to come off and he's going to be in the lake of fire. By using the spiritual gift of tongues in a public worship service without proper interpretation of the tongues for public consumption, The unintelligible gibberish sounds were not edifying to believers in Christ. Worse, it turned unbelievers off and made them think Christians are insane. And the Greek word that indicates that Christians are insane who do this babbling is the word mania, mania. That's how you pronounce it in Greek, mania, but it's mania. We get the, the word mania. They went crazy. The Lord used tongues to inform Israel that they were being judged. They were being set aside for a period of time to usher in the church age. And when Israel and the Jews would not listen to the truth in intelligible speech, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, sent stammering lips to them. And what were the stammering lips? The Assyrian army (laughs) to occupy Jerusalem. That's what you were talking about yesterday, Kent, that... God will send someone to get your attention. And for the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, it was the Assyrian army. Now Paul makes a connection between the hardened heart of Jews and the childish behavior of the Corinthian believers. Just as tongues hardened the hearts of the Jews even more than they were already hard, the misuse of the spiritual gift of tongues in public worship hardened the hearts of unbelievers against Christianity. And what Paul is saying, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is that treating unbelievers like outsiders when they come to church is not the Christian way of living. So that's that. Closing moments of our lesson, we want to remind you that God wants you. And what he wants from you is that you make the most important decision of your life, a decision that takes you roughly one second to make. You matter to God. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow about his promise of salvation, as some accuse him of. Instead, he is patient toward unbelievers, not wishing for any to perish in the lake of fire, but for all to come to a repentance, which is a voluntary change of mind, about having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. To God's enemy, Satan, the ruler of this world, you don't matter at all. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this, Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You are the someone on Satan's hit list if you are an unbeliever. 
The closing moments of our study are for those of you who do not have a personal relationship with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is for those of you who may be wondering what's going to happen to you when you close your eyes in this life. Satan, the enemy of God, dislikes you so much that he doesn't want you to be saved. He doesn't want you to be with God in heaven when you close your eyes in this life. He wants you to be with him in the lake of fire. He wants you so badly that he sends false teachers to deceive you. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, the Lord himself warns about this. He says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And someone who is ravenous is someone who wants to eat you. So the closing moments of this study... I already did that part. Hang on. So the bad news is that all of us are born in a state of unrighteousness. We are born physically alive. We're born spiritually dead as ungodly, unrighteous unbelievers. It's not our fault, but it is our circumstance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, the Bible says, All in union with Adam at physical birth, and that's every human being who comes to the earth, are set to die the second death in the lake of fire. This gospel message is your guide to the good news that rescues you from the kingdom of darkness that you were born into, inviting you to be born again into the spiritual life available in God's kingdom of light. Satan, the enemy of God, who is a very real being, not a concept, sends false teachers to give you a false gospel message. For example, if you've ever had Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, they are evangelizing to you. If you've ever had members of the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints come to your door, they are evangelizing to you. And unfortunately, both of these groups are inviting you to believe in a false gospel message and a false God so that you can share eternity with them in the lake of fire. Neither of these groups believes that Jesus Christ is God. I have family members who are part of these religions, and in spite of my best evangelism efforts, my family members don't want to hear anything that God has to say through me. As a matter of fact, my older brother started off as a Roman Catholic, became a Jehovah's Witness, and he died at 68 years old. And I am praying that some second during his life he had a moment of lucidity and believed in Jesus Christ, but I don't think so, and that is very sad. Many parents are leading their children to an eternity in the lake of fire. If you want to assess whether or not you're a good parent, just ask yourself a simple question. Are you influencing your children to have a relationship with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the sovereign God of the universe? He is the only way to get to heaven, according to John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to the doubting apostle Thomas, I am the way to salvation, I am the truth through the gospel message, the word of God, and I am the resurrection life. And no one comes to God the Father in heaven but through believing in me. If a gospel message makes it sound like you have to work to get to heaven, it is a false gospel message. Romans chapter 11 verse 6 says we don't have to work to be saved. It says, if salvation is by grace, a free gift from God, and of course it is, first class condition if, if and it's true, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is a free gift is no longer grace. It's not free. 
In fact, Romans chapter 4, verse 4 says you can't work for salvation. You can't save yourself. Now, to the one who works for salvation, his wage for his work is not credited to his account as a favor from the grace of God, but his wage is credited as what is due for the work. And self-righteousness is not good enough to get you in heaven because self-righteousness could never be confused with God's absolute righteousness, which you get at the moment of believing in Christ. Your hardest work is not perfect enough to earn you a spot in heaven. If you want to get to heaven free of charge, it's simply a conversation with God the Father. Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and everyone in your household who also believes. But heed the warning in John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has the resurrection life, eternal life, right at that moment. And by the way, there's a difference between eternal life and everlasting life. Everlasting life has a beginning and no ending. The soul once born never dies. Eternal life is you sharing the life of God. Okay, one of these things is not like the other thing. One of these things just doesn't belong. Is it Sesame Street song? What would you rather have? Everlasting life or eternal life? Eternal life. You'd rather share the, the life of God with no beginning and no ending. That's right. So he who believes in the Son has the resurrection life, eternal life, right at that moment. It's not a future event. It's an instant event. But he who does not obey the command to believe in the Son will not see the resurrection life. Instead, the wrath of God, the lake of fire, abides on him. And if it's not God's will that any should perish, then the only way to get to the lake of fire is for you to do something, which is to reject a relationship with Jesus Christ. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 highlight Jesus' mission. God the Father loved the world unconditionally, and he loved the world so much that he gave his uniquely born son, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be crucified on a cross so that whosoever believes in him shall never perish but have eternal life. John chapter 3, verse 17. For God the Father did not send God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to judge the world, but the Father sent the Son into the world that the world might be saved through him. Who is this God that saves you? The Apostle Paul describes the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. It says this, I, Paul, delivered to you as of first importance the gospel message I also received from God, that it was Jesus Christ who died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried, and he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that's what makes the Lord more, more real than any of the pretenders. Buddha didn't wasn't resurrected from the dead. Joseph Smith wasn't resurrected from the dead. No pope has ever been resurrected from the dead. Mohammed wasn't resurrected from the dead. Allah wasn't resurrected from the dead. And none of them died for you either. If you like, you can spend the eternal state with God's enemy, Satan, in the lake of fire, or you can have the free gift of eternal life in God's presence and you can decide that right, right this minute. It's a very simple conversation with God the Father. Father, I believe in Christ. That is the moment of eternal life for you. For a thief on the cross, it was nine words. I gave that as a quiz yesterday, and the kids were struggling with it. Oh, yeah, what did he say? What did that thief on the cross say? He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's no time to waste. 
And remember this, God wants you. So if you want to get to heaven when you close your eyes in this life, simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Take the Lord's word for it. That's what believe means. Take the word, Lord's word for it concerning what it takes to be saved. And the resurrection life is yours, free of charge. Well, let's close with some music. The most powerful event in human history is the cross and what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us there. The religious undo the cross's power in their lives by falling for a satanic substitute. And just like Satan did, the religious proposed that their works are good enough to please God and to earn their own salvation. The Bible insists that they're wasting their time. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21 is one of the many places where the Apostle Paul makes these religious ideas ridiculous He said, I, Paul, do not nullify, that is, set aside the grace of God with self-righteousness. For if righteousness comes through obeying the Mosaic law, then Christ died needlessly. If we could pay for our own sins, if we could save ourselves, there'd be no need for Jesus Christ to go to the cross. June Murphy lets us know in song, a song she wrote and produced, no matter how hard you try, you can't undo the cross.
Thank you, June. I know that's right. John 10, 28, I give eternal life to believers in Christ and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's right. You cannot lose your salvation once you have it. And anybody who tells you that you can is lying to you. Let's close. A doxology of praise to our God. Worthy of praise is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us believers in Christ in eternity past with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, a place of permanence through our union with Christ. God wants us to enjoy his gracious provisions. In Jesus we have redemption, the deliverance from slavery to sin through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the glorious wealth provided by his grace, which he lavished on us, including as a gift, wisdom and insight. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to the God and Father is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think more than humanly possible, according to the divine power of omnipotence that works within us. To him be the glory through the church age believers in union with Christ Jesus and to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, thank you for how big you are. And thank you for expanding our minds. Thank you for tearing down the shackles of our limits. Thank you for helping us to know that we can do all things through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who strengthens us. Thank you for the direction of God the Holy Spirit, who is conforming us to the image of the Son. Help us to see the power that we have within us. Help us to dream dreams again. Help us to not be affected by the propaganda of the news and the propaganda of the world, that we're all sick and unsafe and unhealthy and that we need to separate from each other. And instead, let us come closer together than ever. Let us huddle in the intimacy of your love and let us uh, proceed forward as people who make a difference here in Satan's kingdom on your behalf. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming, thanks for watching, and thanks for listening.